Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracuso. Today's discussion concerns likely or possible congressional reforms to Medicare and Medicaid in 2013. Here to discuss these topics, I'm pleased to welcome Sarah Cliff of the Washington Post and Amy Lotvin of Inside Health Policy. Welcome, Sarah and Amy. Thank Thank you. you. Appreciate your being here. Let's begin with some background. In my November 29th podcast interview with Robert Reichauer, he accurately predicted the Congress lame duck session would be largely a punt, and it was. Savings at $620 billion were about half the Obama compromised $1.2 trillion amount. Raising the debt ceiling was not addressed. Sequestration was turned off for only two months, and less paying for a one-year doc fix, reforms to Medicare and Medicaid were ignored. Consequently, the Congress now has less than two months to raise the debt ceiling. Actually, as of this morning, it may be just six weeks, and reconsider sequestration cuts. And I'll add, in less than 12 weeks, the fiscal 13 budget continuing resolution expires. That's to say, Congress will have to determine fiscal 13 spending levels or pass another continuing resolution. Because the Republicans, again, are insisting that whatever amount the debt ceiling is raised, it be matched by an equal amount of budgetary savings, and because neither party is particularly happy how the $1.2 trillion in sequestration cuts were formulated, generating savings from entitlement spending, namely Medicare and Medicaid, are once again on the table. Just to note, the amount of Medicare and Medicaid savings identified by the President previously has been approximately $350 billion dollars these numbers are always over the budget window or 10 years, and the Republicans have not identified a total amount. Allow me now to introduce my guests. Sarah Cliff covers health policy for the Washington Post. Previously, Sarah wrote for Political, where she authored Political Pulse. Prior to Politico, Sarah was a staff writer at Newsweek covering national politics. Her writing has appeared in journals as widely as National Geographic, the BBC Humanities Magazine, and St. Louis Magazine. She is also the recipient of fellowships by the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Annenberg School at USC. Amy Lockfin has been, for the past five years, a health policy editor and reporter at Inside Health Policy. Amy has worked previously for newspapers in New York, New Mexico, and North Carolina. That's covering and she did her journalism training at Baruch College. So with that as an introduction, let's begin. So let's start big picture. As we move simultaneously into the debt ceiling and sequestration discussions, what's your understanding of what each party wants? Or what's their respective orientations regarding Medicare and Medicaid reform? Who wants to go first? I'll start. Amy. I believe Mitch McConnell said this weekend, made a point to say that Medicare should be changed to better represent the the demographic of the country. So he's basically saying that the uh, eligibility age should be increased. Um, From 65 to 67. 65 to 67. I think he even made a point to say not impacting people currently in Medicare, so a slower phase in per the uh, Ryan budget. Which was to begin uh, in 2022. I believe so, yes. I think it was three months over... Uh, period of time by 2035 and get to 67. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, so that's there they are, and um, McConnell also mentioned you know, means testing, increased. Means increased testing. means testing. Okay. So mm-hmm. Sarah. 
Right, you know, I think we might kind of see a bit of a redux of what we've just meant the past few months through, where, you know, there's a lot of talk about big changes, then you get down to the nitty-gritty and you can't really get anything through both parties. I think, you know, as Amy mentioned, we're definitely going to hear more about means testing and raising the Medicare age, which are, you know, both, they have been big ideas. They have, um, the Obama administration has previously been open to raising the Medicare age, which is one reason I think that stays on the table. Um, I think from Democrats, we'll probably hear more about, you know, finding more efficiencies in the system, um, something like the accountable care organizations that are in the law, kind of ways to reduce spending, they would say, without, you know, hurting anyone. On the Medicaid side, um, I would expect, you know, to hear from Republicans about block granting Medicaid, you know, giving states a lump sum of money and letting them decide, um, you know, what to do with it. My understanding is the White House is, you know, pretty hesitant about Medicaid cuts at the same time that they're trying to convince Republican governors to do the Medicaid expansion. So I think that adds kind of another layer of complexity to this where, you know, the White House doesn't want to tell Republican governors, you know, this expansion is great at the same time that they're saying, and we're going to give you less money for Medicaid. So I think it's very complicated, and we might just end up with, you know, some of these tiny, teeny tiny cuts here and there that were part of um, this last package. So the issues you just mentioned, of course, have been discussed all of 2011, and that you're saying that, that those issues will continue to persist. Just by way of background, uh, it is well known that the Medicare program, approximately $555 billion in 2012, is growing substantially. Between 2000 and 2010, it grew by 8 million beneficiaries, 15 million as a projected growth from 2010 to 2020, and the program will nearly double its beneficiaries to 90 million 2037, and the Republicans argue part of this results in the trust fund going insolvent in 2024. So would it be fair to say that the Republicans are arguing more for solvency of the Medicare program, therefore we need some cuts, and the Democrats are more for efficiency? Would that crudely be the characterization? Yes. Perhaps crudely. <laughs> well, I think, you know, <laughs> Democrats might see efficiencies as a way to extend the solvency. Exactly. I wouldn't say it's an issue they don't think about, and the Affordable Care Act, as it was written, you know, as the Social Security trustees understand, it does extend um, the solvency of the Medicare Trust Fund through a lot of the, you know, changes to doctor reimbursements. Okay, okay. And, and, and also, as, as you know, many Republicans are concerned about wastefulness in, in Medicare and sure. are, you know, support making the program more efficient. And nor are they opposed to efficiency, yes. <laughs> Nobody's opposed to efficiency. <laughs> Let's go to specifics, then, and let's start. Sarah, you mentioned Medicaid, but let's stay with Medicare uh, for the moment. What reforms to the program are, as they say, currently or left on the table? And I'll note, your, your periodical or, or newspaper, the Washington Post, had an editorial just yesterday titled Repairs to Medicare, where they identified, or the Washington Post again identified, four reforms, one of which was the 65 to 67 age, raising the age uh, for beneficiaries in Medicare. The other three were the tax exclusion, let's discuss that, means testing, which you've already noted, and then you just wrote this morning, Sarah, on the IPAP, or strengthening the IPAP, although the Republicans are actually opposed to the IPAP. But let's start with those issues, or feel free to note others in Medicare. Sure. So I'll, I guess I'll start with the IPAP because that's what I was writing about this morning. And that's, you know, one of the reforms that is going to start taking effect over the next coming months. Um, what the IPAB or Independent Payment Advisory Board does is it recommends to Congress ways to cut Medicare spending. 
And it only does this if Medicare spending is growing fast, if it's growing one percentage point faster than the rest of the economy. And what makes it a little different is, you know, we already have some boards that talk about ways to save money. We have um, MedPAC, which does this. IPAB's recommendations are basically binding unless Congress comes up with some alternative, something that saves just as much money and has to pass the House and Senate, which, as we know, lately isn't a very easy thing to do for entitlement reform. Um, so it's possible that as soon as um, next year, January 2014, that the IPAB could be called into action, that, you know, they could be, it starts with the fiscal year 2015, if the actuaries are saying, yeah, it's going to be an expensive year, then they kind of kick in. One idea that's been floated by the Democrats, obviously not very popular with Republicans, is making IPAB even stronger, giving it, you know, even more ambitious spending goals to hit. Spending reductions. Spending reductions, right. They're not trying to spend a lot. (laughs) They're trying to reduce. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's an idea that the White House has, you know, put out there in its budget proposals. Right now, though, Republicans are doing everything they can to kind of, you know, um, get rid of IPAB. You know, they've just put some um, new rules in place in the House that basically gets rid of a lot of the protections that IPAB had in the Affordable Care Act. It says, you know, we can debate these recommendations as long as we want and things like that. So, you know, that's one idea that's out there, but it doesn't really seem like one that's, you know, politically going to move very easily. Right. And, and again, I'll just say not just Republicans, but basically every single healthcare stakeholder and several Democrats <laughs> are yes. not big fans of, <laughs> of IPAB. That's correct. But it is interesting that while this is a provision to reduce or slow cost growth that Medicare, the Republicans oppose. What they oppose is the authority. I mean, that it's you know outside authority. It gives expedited authority to another body or independent mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And of course, the argument too is that it rep, uh, rations care. Yes. yes. Let's go to the 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 lead off issue it was the raising Medicare eligibility to sixty seven. Everything I've read suggests that this is bad policy. In fact, Sarah, your colleague, Ezra Klein, has written on this, uh, that it really just cost shifts. Uh, 65 to 66-year-olds will face higher out-of-pocket costs, Medicaid costs would rise, employer costs would rise, and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. How and or why does this policy become enacted? Um, um, it could possibly become enacted as, as, as part of a larger deal. I mean, as... as you know, you already, as Sarah already mentioned, it, it, the, it was discussed during the fiscal cliff negotiations in two, last year, mm-hmm. and, and then the president did accept them, or, you know, did say that he would accept it, but only as part of a grand deal. Now, that grand deal, I mean, where is that right now? <laughs> it's, it's proven elusive. Um, but, you know, folks still say that it's, you know, it's absolutely mm-hmm. still on the table, and it's possible that it could get some traction if it's designed in a way to protect uh, lower-income beneficiaries. Medicare beneficiaries. Yeah. I mean, but that, you know, the more you you soften it, obviously the less money you get, and, you know, it it could be going into effect and really bringing in very little money. Right. It depends on how it's dialed. CBO Mm -hmm. on the aggressive scenario has it saving up to $124 billion over 10. Mm -hmm. No one foresees that uh, amount of savings. Okay, let's let me ask about the tax exclusion. This issue, of course, has gendered much discussion. This is the tax exclusion employers enjoy 
for providing health care for their employees. And there is a related provision in the Affordable Care Act, the Cadillac tax. And the idea here is that if you reduce the tax benefit to employers, they would offer less expensive coverage, and therefore we'd see some savings. What, what have you heard about the tax exclusion getting any traction this go-around? I think it's going to be really difficult. Um, you know, this is an idea back in 2008 that um, Senator McCain had in his presidential campaign, and he faced a lot of flack, you know, running against Obama with, you know, I think he had proposed um, something like a $5,000, um, basically, um, tax break for um, purchasing insurance, and everyone's saying, well, health insurance costs more than $5,000, and you're going to raise the cost of my health insurance. Right now, it's about $8,600. Right, exactly. So you're going to really, um, you know, make it a lot more expensive. I think, you know, a lot of health economists don't like the idea of the tax exclusion. They say, you know, it doesn't encourage the right kind of behavior, it doesn't make any sense, and it just makes it, um, it gives an unfair advantage to folks who have employer-sponsored insurance, they can get it a lot cheaper than someone trying to buy in the individual market. Um, you know, and it would save tons of money to eliminate it. On the other side, you know, people really like their health insurance. And it's, I think it's going to be a little bit hard for, you know, members of Congress to say, you know, politically, this is a thing I can do. I can make insurance a lot more expensive for my constituents. So I think, you know, while it has some support from health economists, the politics make it a very tough sell. I think um, that they're going to have a hard time, I mean, conversely, they'd have a hard time doing tax reform without addressing the largest tax expenditure. And this is it. And this is it. So I think it does absolutely come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if, you, if you can envision the Senate Finance Committee simultaneously working on entitlement reform and tax reform, <laughs> um, it's going to be very interesting, makes for a... Uh, a very active summer. Yes. <laughs> um, so this, scenario, so I, this issue is more or less only if there's the big deal, because we're talking big money here. I don't know. I honestly don't know, because there are alternative policies that um, it, it, I believe Simpson Bowles suggested being more aggressive with the Cadillac tax, which was basically mm-hmm. the, the alternative that was included in the law that, you know, got, got a little, got at that money mm-hmm. without, you know, doing the exclusion. Um because it was very much on the table during the health care cuts that the president, I, I believe, took it off in, in February or something, even though it was something that the Finance Committee was definitely looking at. Um, but what I'm saying is that like, Simpson-Bowles had suggested being more accelerating the Cadillac tax, broadening it. CBO has also looked at a policy that would accelerate the uh, implementation of the Cadillac tax, say $310 billion over 10 years. And that's a <laughs> lot of money. So by accelerate, you mean have it started? Having it start sooner. sooner which yes. And now it's... 2018. 2018. It was pushed out to 2018. I think CBO would start it in 2014, 2015. Okay, the other large category here with Medicare savings is really cost-shifting, and that's means testing more. Means testing for Part B, physician visits, Part D, the drug benefit, and or restricting so-called Medigap coverage, first-dollar coverage for these Medigap plans or policies, um, supplemental policies Medicare beneficiaries purchase. There is appreciable savings that can be garnered from further means testing. Sarah, you already mentioned means testing. What's your sense? The Democrats have seemed somewhat soft on this. There seems to be at least 
in 2011 some bipartisan support? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think um, since the Affordable Care Act included some, you know, means testing provisions already, it kind of creates some precedent for it, creates precedent for Democrats to support it. I don't think they're enthusiastic about the idea, but I think when they look at the table of options and, you know, look at raising the Medicare age, this looks a little bit more palatable, especially if you're doing it in a way where you're kind of, um, where it's more of a burden on higher income seniors than, you know, and kind of the lower-income seniors are able to dodge any additional cost shifting. The one upset, one upside, rather, to uh, the variation on this, which is the combined annual deductible for Part A and B, is that it would include once again catastrophic uh, coverage. But on the means testing B and D, this scores as high as two hundred and forty billion dollars over the ten-year budget window. So there's a lot of money possibly to be had there. And that provision alone can get you a long way to reaching, say, $350 billion in savings to Medicare over 10 years. Okay, let's, we have time, so let's move on to Medicaid issues. Have received less discussion. They are on the table, then they are off the table uh, most recently. There are fewer things you can do in Medicaid. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned, you know, how do you argue for expansion? expanding Medicaid in 2014 to 133% of FPL at the same time you're going to affect some cuts to, say, FMAP or limiting the um, provider tax. What do you hear about appetite for addressing Medicaid as well? Uh, you know, I think governors are watching this really closely right now. And, you know, they're one of the things that's most appealing about the Medicaid expansion and the Affordable Care Act is, you know, at the very start, the federal government is paying 100% of the costs. You know, states do some costs from, you know, any of the folks who are already eligible but and enroll. But, you know, that's a really fantastic match that states have never when seen. Well, the average is 57%. Right, exactly. So the average is 57%. The federal government saying 100%. I think they're very nervous because it's such a high match. You know, it then drops to 95 and then 90 that Congress at some point is going to say, you know, why are we paying such a ridiculously high match rate and slash those rates? And I think anything Congress does right now to cut Medicare is going to undercut, you know, the trust that folks on the fence have. So I think it's a really delicate area for the Obama administration. I mean, my sense talking to sources there is that, you know, they it was off the table, then it was kind of on the table, but didn't really end up getting touched at all, um, you know, in this past round of deal making. But I think they're very, you know, aware of that challenge and very aware of kind of the tightrope that they're walking right now. Okay. Now, go ahead, Amy, please. I was just going to add that, I mean, agreed Medicaid, um, difficult area, but perhaps some flexibility, shared savings with um, states doing uh, kennel care organizations or other integrated care models, that type of thing could happen. Okay, okay. There have been, over the last several months, numerous proposals uh, to try to squeeze uh, Medicare costs. I interviewed John Rother on December 11th. He's running the National Coalition on Healthcare. They have a lengthy, detailed 45-page plan listing numerous reforms to Medicare that total $550 billion. And there are numerous other proposals out there. What, what's your sense of what impact of any or influence innumerable proposals that are being uh, offered has, or what influence might they have? I think, I think they add to the conversation, absolutely, and we'll be seeing more of them in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And, and continuing yeah. on and on and forevermore. But absolutely, the um, the John Rothers group proposals of, from what I understand, you know, they're getting interest. Uh, the cap proposals that had $360 billion in savings, maybe more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they're, you know, they're showing it around, I'm sure, too, so it's... Right. Yeah, I think conversation. Let me just, one of John's proposals was, and you'll smile, I'm sure, when I say this, the sugar tax. Mm-hmm. This has been discussed for the last few years. It can raise as much as $130 billion over 10. Any sense of uh, discussion on that? Not as much as I've heard. Again, I think it's you know, politically a little difficult for Congress to move on something like that. You've seen at the local level, you know, any kind of soda taxes or, you know, attempts to regulate food in that sort of way don't exactly get a friendly reception. And what comes to mind is, you know, Michael Bloomberg's limits on um, large sodas. I don't know that, you know, Congress is looking for that kind of um, political battle over a sugar tax. Okay, okay. Let's move on to process. And that is, how do you see these negotiations evolving? Will we, we see a reprise of the President and Speaker Boehner negotiating, although the Speaker is now saying he's done negotiating privately with the President? Will the Senate take the lead? Is there even time for regular order? And to what extent do these issues get addressed separately, meaning the debt ceiling and recalculating the savings from sequestration, or they, do they get merged? What's the process going forward? Because we don't have a lot of time. I think we do actually have a lot of times before things get serious. It, it, the pattern that seems to play out here is, you know, everyone, there's some talks and there's a little talking, and then the last two weeks things get really crazy and hectic, and then, you know, at the very end, we end up with a deal. You know, we went over the fiscal cliff, you know, I technically. guess technically for a very short amount of time. So it seems like, you know, in terms of congressional crisis timeline, that we're actually way out from the part where this is going to get really crazy and tense. I think you mentioned we're looking at about six weeks or so until, you know, we hit the debt ceiling. So, you know, I think we're actually still kind of in the calm before the storm, before, you know, negotiations really get very heated. Basically, don't make any plans for Valentine's Day. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Spend your Valentine's Day with Congress. February 14th, yes. And have you heard any discussion? Let me throw this in as well, since I did mention there is the continuing resolution that expires March 31st, so you'd say the same, that in congressional time is distant. Right. I think we've got a few more crises to deal with before that one. What's, here's, here's my direct question on handicapping. What's the likelihood, in your view, relative to all the people with whom you speak and all the study you do, what's your view relative to the likelihood that there is no agreement on raising the debt ceiling, whether we hit the debt ceiling for February 15th or we hit it at the end of February, realizing again we're early into the process in congressional time. I'll say for my part what I'm hearing is a good deal of pessimism. Pessimism that we do or don't? That we don't raise the debt ceiling. Oh, okay. You heard Speaker Pelosi, former Speaker Pelosi, now Minority Leader Pelosi, on the news shows on Sunday said that the President should evoke Uh, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, uh, which states the validity of the public debt of the U.S. shall not be questioned. Of course, the White House has not um, been positive about pulling that lever. So, optimism, pessimism on the debt ceiling. I would imagine some kind of deal gets struck. And if you kind of look at where the markets are right now, they don't seem to be super panicked. Um, You know, I think... 
we've kind of gotten used to, you know, at the very end of a debate, someone swooping in, whether it's, you know, Obama and Boehner or Biden and McConnell. At the end of the day, you know, even with all this panic, we do see deals getting made. So my guess would be, you know, we see another one of these shorter term, you know, less grand bargains getting struck, you know, sometime early February. Okay, and then on specifics, regardless of when the deal is made or regardless of whether the debt ceiling and the and the sequestration get merged, most of this conversation comes down to what's the ratio of revenue to savings. McConnell's already said on Sunday, once again, that they're done now with revenue, net revenue, uh, with the $620 billion in tax increases from the fiscal cliff resolution. Does the president, is the president able to generate more net revenue, or is it just revenue neutral, and the best they can do is limit some loopholes, deductions, and exclusions? Um, yeah, I think I'm not that familiar with tax issues, but would have to say that it's more likely to end up budget neutral. Um, that's what most people are more comfortable with. That's what Congress is more comfortable with. That's the 86 style. Um, I know that Charles Schumer came out in November and said, no, we need to go get past that. We need to generate net savings, but, but our, our revenue. But um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't see a big rallying cry mm-hmm. behind him, honestly. Um, right, and the general sense has been the president had his shot and that's it, and now it's just we're going to savings, and that's going to monopolize the conversation. Right. So, right, budget neutral, loopholes, lowering the corporate rates, and then dealing with entitlement. Spending, meaning Con- reduce, yeah, exactly. reduce uh, entitlement spending. Mm-hmm. And then the figuring out those top line, top line numbers of um, spending reductions will be if. Would you agree, fun. Sarah? I think so, yeah. Okay, that's it from our experts. Let's go to the last few uh, issues we have time for. We could call this the lightning round, but that's not necessary. There are several interrelated issues here begged. We did see a doc fix for one year, which actually most people thought was better than what was to be expected. Most people were saying at most six months. We did get a one-year doc fix. Do we see a full, final sustainable growth rate fix in 2013? No. I would guess now. I mean, the White House did put it on the table with one of their proposals this year. The problem is always, you know, paying for it. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. And, you know, in my time covering healthcare, you know, I haven't seen anything close to a full fix. So I guess I'm a little skeptical of it. All right, I'll go out on a limb and say, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A lot of people believe that the one-year doc fix actually muddied up the ability to get a permanent fix because it took away the urgency. Um, if they hadn't done that, if they pushed it out along with the the sequestration for two months, they would have had to come back to it, and maybe there would have been more energy there. Uh, that's an that's a very good point. Possibility. Um, you know, we heard that Senator Baucus had convened some stakeholders in his office during the the same weekend that the White House was putting a permanent doc fix on the table and talk to them about how they felt about using the war savings Savings. to pay for the doc fix. 
So clearly he was thinking about that. So I, I mean I don't know. I think it I think it will be under discussion because everybody knows that when the the longer you drag this out, the more expensive it becomes. The SGR fix is at its least expensive right now than it has been in many, many years. So if you don't fix it now it's just gonna go utilization is gonna come up and it's going the costs are gonna increase. Good points, good points. Uh, a few other issues quickly. There's been discussion about possibly the exchanges getting delayed. Right now, my count is 23 Republican governors have said they're not going to participate and the federal government will run their exchanges. There are 17 that will run their own exchanges and the remaining 10 looks like some sort of mix. But because of all the work involved, particularly the IT work, there's been some rumors about possibly an ex delay the exchange is kicking off in January 2014. What's your sense? Ooh, I don't believe I've heard that one. In fact, what I what I've been hearing is is that you know where there's a will, there's a way, and that they're going full force and they're going to get it done. Okay. And that you know. Yeah, I think you know I've heard some chatter about you know maybe it would even be best for the healthcare law they could be a little more prepared if they waited you know another year. I think it's really hard though. You know, 2014 has been the day in the healthcare law. If you delayed that, I'd imagine you might have to delay the mandate and delay the subsidies. I think it'd be hard to roll out subsidies in some states and not other states. So I think, you know, like Amy said, you know, they're just, you know, full force tunnel vision on making that happen. All right, time for one last question. And Sarah, you brought this up, and this is all states under the ACA in 2014 can expand to 133% of FPL. Of course, the Supreme Court ruling made that their discretion. Of course, as you said, it's a 100% match for the first two years, then it drops to a only 90%, which is still a good deal by anyone's accounting. But what's your sense? Do we see all the states expanding in 2014 to 133% of federal poverty level? You're both shaking your heads, no. <laughs> not in 2014. You already have a number of states who have said we're not doing it. You know, 2015, 2016, 2020, I think, you know, if the first experiment was starting Medicaid back in the 1960s as any instruction, you know, there you only had a handful of states start the first year, and it just kind of snowballed after that, with Arizona being the very last holdout, you know, joining in the late 1980s. So I think, you know, you see a similar pattern where some states who are enthusiastic start, the others maybe follow in a few years from now. Yeah, I think you see a majority taking it up this year. I mean, Pretty so overwhelming majority. A handful are holdouts, at least for the first. Yes. Year. Okay. Yes, because the the counting, as you said, you know, all the studies that are coming out are saying that the majority of the expenditures that they, I mean, that states can expect, are gonna it will come from people who are already eligible but not yet enrolled in their Medicaid programs. So they they know that they're gonna have to pay that anyway. <laughs> so it just, I mean, and and for various other reasons, job creation, more tax revenue, ah. You know, the, the math is the hard math to turn down. Hard to turn down. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. Okay, well, unfortunately, believe it or not, we're already at our uh, time bound, so I'd like to thank Sarah and Amy. I appreciate your time. Thank you. This concludes this edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast. If you have comments concerning this program or suggestions for future programming, please forward them via the podcast website. So, again, thank you, Sarah and Amy. Thank you. Thank you.